7th uh, after church on that week. Uh, our scripture reading for today is going to be from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 uh, to 35. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, um, we have some Bibles at the ends of the pews if you don't have your own. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those uh, home with you as a gift from us. So it's going to be Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that they have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thank you. 
полетели тут а где я проповедовал Thank you. 
be experiencing destruction or despair into our own individual lives as we long for the things that only you can give. Would you meet us this morning by your scriptures for your purposes that our lives would be transformed and we might be conduits of grace for your purpose? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we would ask kind of at the end of the year, oh, what's it look like for you to live for the good of the world? Uh, to make commitments in that area, to bring the good news of the gospel to those around you, to bring the blessing of Christ to those around you. And particularly, well, what would it look like to give a, a generous end-of-year gift that uh, we could weave that into our budget in the coming year and go strongly into 2024 as we follow Jesus together for the good of His world? Well, let's get into our text this morning. It is a a wonderful passage, and we're going to hit on parts that uh, normally we don't even talk about in the Christmas story, the Advent story, uh, Simeon and Anna, and then boy Jesus at the temple. There uh, are three moments where uh, Jesus interacts with, in a sense, uh, different people at the temple, and, and these interactions, these moments bring, uh, bring about really a, a, a cataclysmic, a seismic change in our lives. And we're going to look into each one of them and say, how does this reshape every piece of who I am? Uh, I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine on the lacrosse team in college. He was a senior. I was a junior. He had just received Christ. He was beginning this relationship with Jesus. And, and we were reading the Bible some together. And there's some other guys on the team reading the Bible. And in the middle of our Bible study, he, he stops us all. And, and he looks around. And he's like, it just feels like I'm going through puberty again. Like his whole life is getting this new paradigm of, of how to live. And he's being reshaped. He's this senior in college. And, and, and he's like, everything is different. The way I think about my life, who God is, what I'm here for, how I even think about my money or my job to come. It's all different. He goes, it just feels like I'm going through puberty again. This, this, everything has changed. It's, it's no longer the same. It's a little disorienting, but a, a, in a massive way, joy-giving and peace-giving and purpose-giving. It's like when I, I walk into my kitchen every once in a while, probably once or twice a year. And I'll come in, and I know where everything is. And then I'll open a drawer. And now the oven mitts are in that drawer. And I say, that's where the silverware goes. And I'll yell, honey! And she'll say, I rearranged everything. And I said, I know! What are you doing? <laughs> and now I can't find. Everything has changed. Everything is different. Nothing is the same. It's like we're going through puberty again. Everything has changed. These moments at the temple, what we're going to step away saying is, because our Savior has come, nothing is the same. In my life, in this world, in all of history, everything has changed. All right, so we'll read the stories, and after each story, I'll just uh, back up and give one kind of main focus or principle out of each one. Uh, so the first is this interaction at the temple with uh, Simeon and Anna, uh, and uh, this is when uh, baby Jesus is being brought by his parents uh, to the temple. All right, chapter 2, verses 22 and following. I'll read it again, but kind of give some commentary as we go. Then we'll stop and focus in on one principle that's life-changing. Do the same then in a shorter way with the parents of Jesus later when he's 12. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, uh, what's going on? Jesus has been born. The, the angels have split the sky. Uh, hey, he's just a little uh, baby child. At this point, he's probably about uh, 40 days old. This is the uh, time of purification. Uh, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, are bringing him to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they're doing this because uh, uh, Mary needs to uh, find purity through the purity laws according to Exodus 12 and then Leviticus 12. Uh, both these kind of purity rites are taking place. Uh, so she's going to come and uh, Joseph will come with her and they'll offer a sacrifice so she can, be- can begin worship again. Uh, but at that same time, they're bringing uh, Jesus with them, the, the firstborn son, because uh, there's also a sacrifice to be offered for him, the firstborn son, according to Leviticus chapter 12. So they're here kind of doing these things as faithful Jews would do after a child is born. Uh, they are faithfully living and they're coming to the temple to offer these sacrifices. Uh, they're poor because they bring turtle doves or pigeons. They, they are commanded to bring a lamb, but if they don't have a lamb, you bring uh, what's the next best, these pigeons, if you're poor. So they uh, bring these to the temple for sacrifice. Now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the comfort when you console someone of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the anointed one, the one to come. And and he came in the spirit, Simeon did, into the temple. And then the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. Uh, so this is a great moment for Simeon. He's a, a, a devout uh, Jew. He is waiting for the one that the Old Testament has promised, the Savior to come, the Christ, the Anointed One. And he's there in the temple, and, and he goes in the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and he is a, a faithful man who knows the Lord. And, and the Spirit has prompted him saying, hey, before you die, you'll see the Savior. And at this moment, you, you kind of get the sense of the Spirit nudges him or directs him to Jesus who's coming to the temple, and he holds him up, and he's like, wow, this is the one who the, the Lord has promised. This is the Savior to come. And he holds him up, and he yells, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This is the uh, nunc dominitus. This is in Latin, now dismiss your servant. I can go, he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He holds up this baby and he says, I can die now. (laughs) I can go. My life is complete. He's complete. I've seen the Savior. and I can depart in peace. I've seen the salvation that you have promised God, a a salvation that's for all. All people, Jews and Gentiles. This isn't uh, just a Jewish thing. This is for salvation for the, uh, all people. The, this is a greater problem than just Rome uh, holding us captive. Uh, this is a, a greater salvation than just release from uh, Rome's captivity. This is uh, a forgiveness of sin, salvation for all of eternity. Uh, this is a greater scope than just uh, Jews. This is for Jews and Gentiles, all people. And his father and his mother, they marvel it was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul. There's no pain like the pain of bearing your own son. So that many thoughts from many hearts may also be revealed. This is not a great blessing. (laughs) Everything's been uh, bright and glorious and shining and praise, praise, wow, joy. And now Simeon brings this news of a blessing of of Mary's son who's going to pierce her own soul. He's going to divide people. It's going to open the hearts of men and women. And there's also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. That's a bummer of a name. Of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, which is a politically correct way to say she's old. <laughs> Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She's a widow. After seven years of marriage, she is now widowed till 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She also is super devout. And she also is waiting for this Savior. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's step back out of the story for a second and ask ourselves, uh, what do we learn from these two, their interaction with Jesus at the temple? They are waiting for and living for Jesus alone. They are waiting for Jesus. Uh, Their whole lives are oriented around waiting for this Savior who will arrive, this promised one that God is sending. Every bit of them is organized and, and aimed at this moment when the Savior will come. Uh, We see it in Simeon. Uh, He's waiting there at the temple. He's moved by the Spirit. And right when Jesus, the Savior, this baby comes, he he holds him up and he says, now I can die. And he, he raises his praise to God. And everyone in the temple, he says, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is our Savior. His whole life is aimed in waiting for this Savior, this Jesus. Uh, The same is true of Anna. As she comes day in and day out, night and day, in prayer and fasting to the temple, and she's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's waiting for the Savior to come. Uh, He comes and she gives thanks to God. And then you see she kind of runs all over the temple and speaking, talking with everyone, saying, He's here, He's come, the one I'm waiting for has arrived. Jesus is the climax of their story, their whole life. I'm an English guy, and so uh, in high school English, I taught the plot line over and over again. You got setting and background first, you know, it's just it's really simple, but the, you know, you got to know who's involved, where is involved, what time is it, right? And then you get this inciting incident, and then everything from there kind of starts moving towards what? The climax of the story. That moment when you say, oh man, I can't believe this happened or that happened. And then everything else from there is just simple resolution until the denouement and it all closes out. Simeon and Anna have said, we're going to live our whole life waiting for that moment when the Savior comes. We want Him to orient our whole story. He is why we're here. 
And the one they are waiting for then becomes the one they are living for faithfully. The one they are longing for becomes the one they are living for faithfully. And notice all through the text. You have the law of Moses. You've got the uh, custom of the law. You've got them uh, going to the temple and they're fasting and they're praying. They've organized their whole life and all they do day in and day out according to the one they're waiting for. The one they are waiting for is the one they are living for. He's the climax of their story. He organizes every piece of all they do. Anna is crazy up to 84, day in, day out, every day at the temple, fasting and praying day in, day out. Organizes her whole life. Waiting for what? The consolation, the comfort that God is going to bring through this Savior. Waiting for the redemption, the freedom He's going to bring through this Savior. And it's a long time. That's the nature of faithfulness, isn't it? Uh, you, can't, you can't be faithful if it's not over time. Uh, day in and day out. Through the, the, the highs and the lows, she loses her husband. And she keeps remaining faithful, eyes fixed on the Savior she's waiting for. Ups and downs, a long obedience in the same direction. It's like the oak tree, this picture we get in Psalm 1, this, uh, this giant tree planted next to streams of living water. It's like the, the oaks out in California. They grow huge and massive. You chop them down and you see all the rings in them. How many years has this one been alive? Hundreds of years. And you, you see, we get to see kind of the, the beautiful canopy up top, but, but it took so many years because the roots have sunk in, mirroring the very canopy of a tree, the deep and slow, a long obedience in the same direction, being organized by the one you are waiting for. On our on-demand, easily distracted culture, we are so prone just to Man, just to get lost, I'm just going to say get lost in our phones <laughs> and just lose sight of the one who ought to organize our whole lives. Or to chase this whim or that whim or that new teaching or this way and, and unlike Anna, unlike Simeon, live our lives in a slow obedience, a long obedience in the same direction to our God who organizes everything. Uh, because they knew he, in Him is joy, right? In Him is satisfaction. In Him is consolation or comfort. In Him is life. He's freed me to live for Him. I can't wait till He gets here. I want to live for Him. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? Well, what will make you explode with joy? If I could just get this, I could, hey, I could go now. I'd be done, right? Like, uh, count me dead. I'm fine. I got what I'm waiting for. Uh, some of us, it's that next step, right? We're students, and we think, it's just graduation. I, I remember graduating. You know, you, you put on the cap and gown. It's a proud moment. There is lots of joy, and it's amazing, right? And then it passes. And it's the first job, right? Now, if I, I remember walking into Brook Point High School as a teacher, an English teacher for that first year. I'm like, this is pretty cool. Then I got my first paycheck. Oh. <laughs> I literally went to the principal and I said, I don't think this is right. 
She said, Matt, well, it's, uh, it is a small paycheck, and we take taxes out. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right? Like, it, it never quite lives up to what we're hoping for, what we're waiting for. It, it, this happens for me with Christmas most years, and Court and I were just talking about this. It, sometimes it gets even worse as parents. We, we think, man, this one's going to be awesome, right? Like, this is going to satisfy all my kids' deepest desires. Oh, how naive. <laughs> And we get this or that present. It's, it really is amazing at first. And then it goes away. The one we wait for, the one we long for, is the one we live for. And only He can satisfy. Uh, let me put it this way. It, the one we wait for, it must be Him. The one we long for, it must be Jesus alone. Everything else is anticlimactic. Uh, but I know uh, many of us are waiting here, and I don't think it's any coincidence that God is breaking into these waiting moments in some really tough situations where Elizabeth and Zechariah, right earlier, are waiting for a child. Uh, where many of us are waiting, uh, longing to be married. And there are these kind of relational pains in our lives, and, and there's no pain like relational pain. Uh, like Anna, who loses her husband. I sat with a pastor uh, just last week, and uh, they've been trying to get pregnant for over four years now. And then they got pregnant. And then in the middle of the week last week, he lost that child. And we're sitting together, and he's telling me and two other pastors about it. And you know what he didn't say? Here's what he didn't say. That's okay because I'm waiting in Jesus. That's okay because Jesus is enough. That's so cliche. Now look, is he finding the depths of his longings in Christ alone? Yeah, he is. But here's what he said. He said, what I know is that Jesus is weeping with us now. He knows this world is broken and our bodies are broken in this and he's weeping with us now. And he said this also then. He took it a step further. He goes, and he, he knows that Jesus is angry with us right now. Not angry with us, but along with us at this broken world. And he said, I know that Jesus whom I wait for, whom I long for, who is with me. He is with us right now. He's walking with us so intimately. He's even working in the depths of our heart and our relationship with each other as a married couple. And with him now in the weeping and in the anger, he is weeping with us. He is angry with us. He is walking with us. And only he will satisfy and carry us through this. I sat with a missionary couple. If anyone ought to have it good in their lives, like the smiling face of God and everything going well, it ought to be a missionary couple who's serving in the heart of Turkey, right? They lost their six-year-old son like that overnight. So broken, so much weeping. And here's what they will say to you and to me over the past 10 years. They'll say they're waiting for that day when their Lord returns and they get to be with their son for all of eternity. They just can't wait. Heaven is more real to them now because they know their Savior's returning is going to mend all things. 
He often is weeping with us. He's angry alongside of us. He is holding us and working with us in these moments as he waits along with us for his return when he will make all things right. I, uh, I, I love the kingdom parables because they're so honest in Matthew 13. Uh, there are these parables where Jesus says, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like when I come into your life and the lives of the church and the lives of the world. He says, first, it's like uh, these, this wheat and uh, these weeds, right? Like uh, the, the farmer plants all this wheat, and then uh, the, the evil one, Satan, comes in and throws all these weeds, and it looks like evil is winning. He's like, that's sometimes how it feels like in the kingdom of God. It looks like evil is winning. And then he says, oh, actually, it's kind of like yeast, right? It's like yeast. You, you throw it in bread, and, and then it doesn't look like anything is happening, and so we're asking ourselves, man, as, as Jesus comes, he's with us, it looks like evil is winning, and, and, and like the yeast that's in this, uh, this dough, it doesn't look like anything is happening. And then he says, well, it's actually kind of like a pearl in this field, and, and the guy who's about to purchase the field says, is this even worth it to sell all I have to take this pearl and get this field? And we often ask ourselves as we're waiting for our Lord and waiting with our Lord, man, it looks like evil is winning, it looks like nothing is happening, is this even worth it? you got to imagine Anna, after 84 years going to the temple with no husband, it's just, just gets kind of boring and old waiting. <laughs> Simeon saying, man, I wonder when he would come. It makes me think of this baby who's born here, is presented at the temple, and then grows up. And he's hanging on this cross. And we say, oh, it looks like evil is winning. And then he's buried in this tomb, and we say, oh, man, it looks like nothing is happening. And then he resurrects the newness of life, and, and all of heaven and all of earth is transformed, and your life is transformed, mine is transformed. We say, oh, it is worth it. He is our Savior whom we wait for. See, I know the climax of your life and my life will be when you see Jesus face to face, when that day comes. Uh, there's this great verse in 1 John chapter 3, 2 and 3. It says, man, we're his children, and, and, and we don't know that uh, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That this one day is going to come, and, and we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to say, oh, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And he's going to transform us. And, and this might happen when we die, right? Like uh, we might die and be welcomed into the arms of Christ. Uh, uh, John chapter eleven twenty five 25 says he's the resurrection and the life. So if we die, we're, we're ushered into his presence and we'll see him face to face. Or it might be when he returns. We read about it in Revelation chapter 21 when, when Jesus comes out of the heavens and everything is made new and all tears are wiped away, all brokenness is gone. And that, either one, any of those will be the climax of your life. When the suffering will be incomparable to the glorious righteousness of our Savior when we're made like Him and we say, oh, it was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. Then for all of eternity, we'll be with Him. I keep a calendar. I don't know where you keep your calendar. Um, hopefully you keep a calendar. We're all grown-ups at this point. You should keep a calendar. <laughs> I keep mine on Google. Uh, then we keep our family one there. This is our month calendar right here. And as uh, looking over the next two weeks, and I, I saw on a calendar, you can't read it there, but it says the return of Jesus. It's an all-day event. It's a recurring event every year. It pops up right there on the, 
I think that's the 28th, on the 28th of December, because uh, a couple years back, I preached a sermon where we talked about, hey, look, he will come again. He's actually going to come back. Might not be on the 28th of December. <laughs> but so every year, this hits my calendar as a reminder, oh my gosh, Jesus is actually real. He's actually coming back. And I actually wait for his return. What a day it will be. It's a seismic shift of our life to treasure him most, to wait for him, and then let him reshape how we live, what we live for, that he might be the climax of our life as we live for the one we are waiting for. There's one more temple interaction. Uh, We're going to spend way less time in it, but there's one moment in it uh, we just can't let pass. It's a great one. Uh, So let's go into this uh, moment in Luke chapter 2. We'll continue in verse 39. So uh, when they had uh, performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was on him. So uh, Jesus is growing up. um, And now uh, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So Jesus is 12 now, and they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They do this every year, a 10-day feast. They go to Passover, and uh, they bring Jesus with them. There's probably other siblings as well. Uh, He is the firstborn of a, a, a whole brood of kids. And when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. This is terrible parenting. (laughs) they go to jerusalem for the feast of the passover uh they leave jerusalem they go a day's journey and then they realize oh shoot we forgot jesus i've done that before Uh, at a grocery store and then once uh my littlest son who's eight at the time we we oh man we, we left him at soccer practice when soccer practice was canceled And I got a call from a parent whom I didn't know because I didn't recognize the number. She said, I have your son here. It's terrible parenting. (laughs) And we've all been there, uh, but by God's grace, Jesus turned out just fine, didn't he? (laughs) It gets worse because they go back after a day being away on the journey, and they hunt for him for three days in Jerusalem. It's been four days, and little boy Jesus is... (laughs) He's in Jerusalem, and they don't know where he is. You know, I, I had that moment, I remember, uh, in the grocery store. I mean, it was like three minutes, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm the worst parent. I wonder if he's gone, you know. Oh, my. And they show up, and they're astonished, and all these teachers are astonished, too. Jesus is listening to them and asking them questions, and in his questions, they're realizing we don't know half as much as this kid does. They've been studying the law and the Torah their whole lives. They don't know Jack compared to Jesus. And here's the moment 
I love. Mary, and, and through this whole thing, we, we see his parents. We see it in the earlier uh, accounts, too, with Simeon and Anna. His parents, his parents, his parents, his mom and his dad, right? Mary says to him, his mother said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus, why have you treated us so? This is not what we signed up for. Don't you know we're your parents, we're your authority, and and here you are in the temple leaving us. Why have you treated us so? See, what's happening in their life right now is they're realizing, and and Jesus is going to help open their eyes to this, uh, that He is the authority, and they are just humans. (laughs) Uh, But that brings a whole bunch of angst and distress in their life when Jesus goes off on his own way, doing his own thing, uh, much in discord with their agenda, their expectations, their comfort. And Jesus says to them uh, in response, Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Don't you know that I'm the son of God? It's one of those mic drop moments probably for Mary and Joseph, though it says later they don't quite understand what's going on here. Uh, Jesus says, hey, look, I am God. I'm of the very nature of my Father. Uh, I'm the Son of God. Jesus says, I am in my Father's house doing what my Father desires according to His agenda, not yours. That might be uncomfortable for you, but I'm okay with that, Jesus says. There's a shifting, a reversal of authority. Have you had this moment in your life, and hopefully you have this moment all the time, in which Jesus brings a circumstance in your life or allows a circumstance in your life that does not meet up or line with your expectations? Oh, I thought when I signed up for following Jesus, all would be smooth. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the Son of God. I'm not your Santa Claus. I'm doing a deeper work in and through even the brokenness. I, I, Jesus, have uh, plans for you that you won't understand. It will be very uncomfortable for you. Your circumstances won't always align with the expectations you think that I, Jesus, should bring. Or what about when Jesus brings a command in your life you're not so comfortable with or you don't desire? Are you still living for baby Jesus or are you living for the Son of God? And he says, do this with your money. Give it away generously. You say, no, 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 no. Do this with your sexuality. Trust me here. You say, no, 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 no. Are you living for a little baby Jesus or the Son of God whom we can trust with our whole lives? It's a reversal of authority. It's this realization that you and I were not the most important in the room. We have to wrestle with that as Jesus' parents do here. I went to, um, a bunch of years back, went to Israel with Courtney that we could walk, uh, walk the land that Jesus walked. It was pretty amazing. And uh, when we were there, we were there with this group of Kenyans. And, and uh, the Archbishop of Kenya was there with us in our group. The Archbishop of Kenya, this is Dr. Jackson Ole Sapit, and he, he's like, uh, he's massive, he's a huge man, and um, 
He's walking along with us, and much like Jesus, he had a herald. Uh, Jesus' herald was the angels, but uh, Archbishop uh, Dr. Jackson had, had a herald, to, literally a herald. So when he would come into a room, uh, the herald would come in first and say, Archbishop Jackson is entering, and everyone would stand up. It's like, uh, it's, it's this immediate moment when you knew, I'm not the most important in the room. I'm not the most important. But here's the coolest piece about him. He was so chill. <laughs> He's over 6 million Anglican Kenyans. 6 million. Archbishop Jackson. And, and we got to eat dinner together. And one time, we're like uh, up overlooking uh, the deserts uh, in southern Israel. And, and I'm like, I put my arm around him, right? He's super approachable. Like this guy of, of massive power and influence uh, uh, became so accessible and kind. And, and so uh, in these moments where we're realizing, ah, I'm not the most important in the room, and, and there's great angst and distress to this, and, and I, there has to be this massive authority shift where he comes over me. It's so amazing what Jesus does. He does it over and over again in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He went down with them, it says, the text, after he drops the mic, he says, I'm in my father's house. They didn't understand what he's saying. He went down with them, verse 51, to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Uh, see, this is another one of those moments where we see the, the mighty, majestic, grand God Leverages all he is for you and for me. Even in this moment, he finds himself submissive to his earthly mother and father. And don't you get the sense that as they're walking back, they're realizing, wow, this, this kid's different. He just said he was God. Yet, he's living in our household with such tenderness and submission, even to us. He does this in his birth, uh, God, the holy God coming in a manger. He does this in his life. He takes all of his authority, and what's he do? He washes his disciples' feet. He leverages it for them. He comes under them to serve them. In his death, he says, I could call angels here right now, like they're arresting him. He says, I could call a whole legion of angels and smite all of you right now, but instead I'm going to the cross for you to save you. And then he does it in his resurrection to pour out himself that he would be a comfort to us, and a freedom to us, redeeming us from our own sinful brokenness. When we pull back and we head into communion, the most seismic shift is, is this idea that uh, this story, my life, uh, all of it, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not in the middle of things. I, I, this is a Copernican shift, a Copernican revolution. Uh, uh, Copernicus uh, had, had this, oh, I was looking for the screen that used to be back there. <laughs> Uh, Copernicus had this uh, model of the universe where he said, actually, it's not the heliocentric, uh, it's the heliocentric model where, where the, the sun is the center of the universe. Uh, Ptolemy said before him, actually, uh, this is the geocentric model where, where our earth, us, we're the middle of the universe, right? We're in the middle. Everything revolves around us. And then Copernicus says, whoa, let's blow your mind here. You're not the middle of things. The sun is actually the middle of things. Everything revolves around it. Uh, see, I think we live in kind of the meliocentric universe. I know that's cheesy, but you're going to remember it. <laughs> Where everything revolves around me. As the great theologian uh, once said, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> that's what needs to happen in our lives. 
That's what needs to happen in our lives. You're not the center of the story. I'm not the center of the story. We're not the center of our lives. The one we most treasure, the one we wait for in his return, he is coming back and he'll make all things new. He's the center. Uh, the one who is the Savior, the one who brings consolation, uh, comfort, the one who brings uh, purpose, the, uh, the one who, who, who frees us from our own sinfulness and brokenness, uh, He is the center of all things. I love it. Even uh, all through this passage, uh, things like uh, are said, He is the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, guide our feet in the way of peace. Our God, Jesus Christ, who came, this baby who was born to die, who resurrected, He, make make Him uh, this Advent the center of your life and story. Uh, He's the center of all of history. He's the center of all creation. He is the Creator. He is God Himself. So here's what I want us to do as we head into communion together. If you are trusting in Christ, if this is true of you, that you want Him to be the center of your life, I, I'd ask you, and I'd ask all of us, if you're willing, just to kneel as we head into communion together, if you're willing and able. And kneel is a sign of surrender, that we are a reversing authority again in our lives in areas that don't line up with who He is, His commands, or even the circumstances that bring us tension, we would submit those to Him. And we would also submit our longings to Him. Asking Him to come and meet us in the depth of our longings that we might find in Him what we long for in this or that or Him or her. I come before Him now. Pray and talk with Him. When you're ready, take communion, but... Talk with him about the longings. What do you long for? What are you waiting for? Ask him to meet you in that. Talk to him in places of authority and a shift where you need to find yourself in alignment under him. Be beckoned by his love, his mercy, his grace, and his might, and his glory, and his justice that he even poured out on his son. Come before him, talk to him now. Laying your longings before him and finding yourself in full submission to him. Take and eat when you're ready.